We would like to think that when we come to Jesus, the angels sing and life becomes a sweet and pain-free adventure. The angels do sing, but life with Jesus in a world that defies him can be exceedingly hard and challenging. And Paul is no stranger to the challenges of living all in for Jesus in this world. Listen to this. This is, to me, a stunning passage from 2 Corinthians. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. In far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. I've lost count of how many times they beat me up. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Now, I am in awe of Paul's devotion for the Lord. I mean, who gets beaten times without number and has many repeat occasions when they're flogged 39 times? Beyond the physical challenges, every day his heart is burdened for the churches he's been associated with. He wants them to prevail against specific challenges that they each face. Shocker, some of Paul's most painful experiences were not the beatings. They did hurt. But some of his most painful experiences were the product of relational conflict among the saints. And here's one of the reasons. Satan is committed to throwing accelerants on conflicts, either burning or smoldering. He likes to throw gas on them in the body of Christ. What I want to do is zero in on a particular incident in the life of Paul that gives us insight into this dynamic. And so we're going to look at the Corinthian debacle. In 2 Corinthians, we can put together the pieces and get a picture of some painful history that Paul shared with the Corinthians. Now, here's the core problem. At some point, and this point would be after the writing of 1 Corinthians, and again, I'm having to make a composite view based upon a number of scriptures, but someone crossed the line in Corinth, and Paul became a target, and the church was thrown into turmoil. Now, this happened when Paul was there, and the best reconstruction we can do of the history of Paul's engagement with the Corinthian church is for this to have occurred between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. Uh, this would be something uh, that he calls in chapter 2, verse 1, a painful visit. And it was probably made from Ephesus. Paul came for an extended 
time of ministry on his third missionary journey to Ephesus and then apparently made a trip across the Aegean to Corinth and came back. But it was a painful visit. Paul was actually planning to visit once again. But because of all of this turmoil that really started with a particular person, but it threw the church into a big melee, he had plans to come back, but he didn't. He got before the Lord and he said, I'm not going to come back because I don't want to be an accessory to additional pain for the church. Here's what he said in chapter 1, verse 23. But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. Paul declared it as a matter of conscience. I've gotten before the Lord on this, and I've made a travel decision. He was intending to come to them, and the fact that he canceled his plans, they were mad at him for that too. He says, I've gotten before the Lord, and I've decided that I am going to protect you from further hurt by not coming. Now, because of something else that Paul said, we know that his integrity was probably called into question. That was a part of this controversy. Here's what he says in 1.12. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. I have a clear conscience as regards to how I have conducted myself with you. But after this painful visit... And then after the cancellation of his plans to return to Corinth, he wrote a letter. Now, this letter is not in the Bible. Uh, as far as we know, there were four letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and only First and Second Corinthians have been retained in the Scripture. So God decided that what he had to say in this letter, called the painful letter, <laughs> was not something that needed to be preserved. It was helpful to Corinth. And here's, according to uh, chapter 2, verse 9, here's his reference to it. For this end, or for to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient in all things. There was an individual became the catalyst for a great conflict. Paul's integrity was thrown into question. So Paul said, I'm not going to come visit you, but I'm sending you a letter that is going to basically introduce a test whether you're obedient in all things. He challenged the congregation to address the sin of the individual who was at the center of this controversy. Now, again, we don't know who that individual was or what really happened, but he basically said, I need you to, to talk to this person, rebuke this person, now, I get why Paul did this. You know, he could have come to Corinth and he could have said, this guy is a problem, but there were personal implications. So rather than come and make it about him, he said, church, you need to address this. Because, yeah, he may have done some things against me, but what he's really done is against you. So he appealed to them to step up. And for the majority, they actually responded well. Here's what it says in chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. But if any has caused sorrow, he's caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order not to say too much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment, 
Now, the word punishment, I want you to hang on to that. I mean, I'm going to explain it in a sec. Which was inflicted by the majority. So the majority responded in a certain way. So that, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. The majority of the church, not all, delivered a rebuke. Now, the word that is translated punishment in that passage that I just read is what's called a New Testament hopox. That's a word that only shows up one place in the, New, in the Bible. Uh, but there's a verb form. Uh, this was a noun, but the verb form that is a cognate that is related to it is actually translated almost every place, rebuke, warn, or tell. So the, quote, punishment, I think, was an exhortation or a rebuke of this person. It was words. The individual was genuinely repentant. He was sorrowful. But sorrow can be overwhelming. So Paul calls them to forgive, encourage, and reaffirm their love for this individual. Paul explains that he is calling them to do nothing less than what he has done. Verse 10, he says, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And then make, Paul makes a stunning revelation. I mean, all that I've said is really just backdrop for you to understand something that is in the next verse. So that, why is Paul doing this? Why have they done this? So that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul says, I want you to forgive him. Yeah, this guy who called me into question and created a big turmoil in the church and did much damage to the church, and you rebuked him, and he was genuinely repentant. He was sorrowful. In fact, the sorrow could overwhelm him. I want you to forgive him just as I have forgiven him so that, here's why, no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. By not answering repentance with forgiveness, if they didn't forgive, they would have given Satan some leverage Paul forgave, and he appeals to the congregation to do the same thing as a good defensive tactic. He says, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for, here's an explanation, let me explain, you know, wh why am I saying this? We are not ignorant. We're not in the dark. We are in the know about what? His schemes now, the word schemes, uh, the best word I know for that is mindcraft. Now, that's not minecraft, okay? Mindcraft. In other words, he is capable of craftily affecting our thinking. And Paul was saying, I have chosen to forgive this man, and I am appealing to you to do the same, because if we do not... Satan is going to have an advantage. 
Satan who messes with our thinking is going to gain an advantage. To not forgive is for you to become an easy target. Hear me clearly. We give Satan an advantage when we fail to do something God directs. You can actually use your knowledge of how he likes to use our failures as leverage against us as an incentive to do what is right. I need to do what is right for its own sake, but also in the knowledge that I don't want to give the enemy any more power than he already has. Now, for example, it's possible, let's say, let's say I steal something, and then you confront me about it. I am much more prone to commit a second sin that is to lie. I didn't take anything. In fact, it's in the Bible, Acts 5.3, Ananias and Sapphira. Peter said to Ananias, and listen, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? You said, I'm going to sell my property and give it all to the Lord, but you didn't do that. You took some of it. And then what happened? Satan exploited an advantage that was given. And when he was asked about it, he lied about it. And the enemy used that first sin as leverage. So here's principle number one, what I want you to take so far. Unacknowledged sin allows Satan to more easily draw you into further sin and to work your harm. I'll say it once again. Unacknowledged sin, when I don't face, deal with whatever, allows Satan to more easily draw you into further sin and to work your harm. And in Ananias' case, he took and Satan filled his heart to lie and he died. As did his wife, who was complicit in the same strategy. We're not ignorant of his schemes, he says to the Corinthians. I wonder how, if that's true of us or not. Now, this survey is a little bit old. This is 2009, uh, was the most recent one I could find. But listen to this. 65% of self-professed Christians don't believe Satan is real. Now, I've, I've got to believe that that percentage is not true here. I, don't, I won't have a show of hands how many of you believe Satan is real. But the Bible reveals a lot about Satan's schemes. Satan is real. He is an angelic being who rebelled against God. Even now, he works to oppose God and God's people. And I want to give you a glimpse of how he operates. So I'm going to just show you eight passages I'll go through them fairly quickly. But, uh, and there's many more, but these are enough for you to appreciate who we're dealing with. Paul says we are not ignorant of his schemes. All right, let's fight some ignorance by taking a look at, here's 2 Corinthians 11.3. Same book, by the way. He's talking to the same Corinthians who are not ignorant of his schemes. And Paul says... To the Corinthians, he wrote 2 Corinthians after they dealt, got things right. And he said, I'm afraid 
that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. What do we learn? Well, we know that Satan's opposition to God predates the fall. By the time Adam and Eve were in the garden, Satan was already pushing a different agenda. And his strategy in the garden was the same as it is today. In other words, Paul says, I'm afraid that he's going to pull an Eden on you. He wants to mess with our thinking. Your minds should be led astray. He wants to play with our thinking, specifically uh, simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He wants to make following Jesus complicated. Yes, follow Jesus, but you've got other things on your agenda list too. He wants it to be compromised with less than full devotion. Follow Jesus, but you need to, you know, promote your career. You need to do whatever. That was his mind game in Eden. God is holding out on you. He knows that if you eat of this fruit, you'll gain something that is advantageous. So, yeah, God is okay, but you need this too that God said no. Paul says we are not ignorant of his mind craft because the word, the word of God reveals it. Passage 2, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This is the truth. Satan, who is also called the devil, is our adversary. He is actively hunting for easy targets. And he says, be on the alert. A clear-headed alertness is called for among all saints. Zechariah 3.1, passage 3, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing in his right hand to accuse him. Satan is the accuser of God's servants. And currently, this won't be true at a certain point in future history, but to date, it is still true. He currently has access to heaven. And he is very proficient in the art of recrimination. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Here's Peter. You can't be closer to Jesus than Peter. No one is beyond Satan's influence. And one of his mind-craft strategies is to divert our attention toward man stuff at the expense of what matters to God. Getting all wrapped up in the stuff that men think is so important instead of what God says is important. Passage 5. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown and when they hear immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which was been sown among them. Satan employs what I call word snatching. When someone in this parable Jesus is saying here's what some people how some people are going to respond to the truth. It's going to happen in this room. Someone is exposed to life-changing teaching and then Satan messes with their head and they don't remember it. 
Now I realize I have to put a footnote in here. Yes, I'm aging and I'm experiencing this thing where I can't recall certain things. Not all of it is satanic induced, but uh, it's just this aging thing. So, however, there are times when someone is hearing the truth and they're, they're drawn to it. And then I don't know how he does it, but Satan is able to snatch it. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Satan is capable of manipulating circumstances to introduce extreme faith tests. Think of Job, where we get more insight into it. You know, God says, and God's the one who started it, have you considered my servant Job? He's the real thing. Satan says, no, he is not. Let me have my way with him, and I will prove to you that he is not the real thing. And Job went through what he did because Satan was allowed to do the same thing that he wants to do with Peter, which is to sift him like wheat. He takes the initiative, and he demands. Now, I have to balance what I've just told you. God is a perfect father. He never allows Satan to do something that is beyond our capacity in him to prevail. It's all father-filtered. But trust me, Satan can push us close to the edge. 1 Thessalonians 2.8 for we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Satan can thwart ministry plans. And he can do this repeatedly. He did it more than once. Roadblocks, brick walls, emergencies, health crises can all be employed to hinder following what Jesus tells us to do. It's all within his toolkit. 2 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15. This is a scary verse. I realize the others are scary too, but this one's really scary. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Satan is capable of convincingly presenting himself as an angel of God. And his servants work from the same playbook. You know, I've heard it said that Satan does not wage war for what he already controls, which means among God's people, whom he doesn't control, he doesn't own, that that is where he's going to fight, but he's going to go undercover. So we got two options. We can give him advantages or we can successfully oppose him. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Here's principle number two. Despite his opposition, those who have submitted to God can offer prevailing resistance against the devil. It is possible. I mean, I've shown you the, some of the range of what he can do. And it's sobering. But this passage in James 4, 7 is telling us it is possible to successfully oppose the enemy. 
and for him to flee. Despite his opposition, here's the principle once again, those who have submitted to God can, it's not automatic, but they can offer prevailing resistance against the devil. But it is a conscious choice. It's something they have to choose to do. So what is involved in resisting the devil? Paul explained this to the Ephesian church, the church that he was at where he made the painful visit to Corinth and then came back. And so he has given us some insight into a prevailing strategy. Here's how you can be successful in your resistance against the enemy. And I have to acknowledge I'm just going to give you the first step. You need more, but the first step will get you going. I want you to not be afraid, but do not assume you can do this on your own. God has provided what we need to prevail. So you have to trust him and then actively use his resources. And you can effectively oppose Satan's schemes. He is very interested in destroying what God wants to do in your life. He's very interested in you not hearing me and what I'm saying even now. The passage I'm looking at is Ephesians 6, starting with verse 10. Paul said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, finally, is basically Paul's way of saying, here's my last word. Our sermon series is last word. Here's Paul's last word. He goes through the things he does in the book. First half of the book is about, I want you to know who you are and what you have in Christ. And therefore, starting in chapter 4, you will not live the same way. Last word. Here's what you've got to know. He says, be strong. And that's a present imperative. He's saying, be continually made strong. Okay, where do I get this strength? Two sources, he says, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Meaning, I want you to be strong in the Lord's presence and using his resources, his strength. Namely, verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, putting on armor, I want you to notice this because there's... a. a if you read commentaries on uh, Ephesians 6, it's going to range all over. But if you understand this simple thing, it will really help you. Putting on the armor is something we must do. It's something that you can either choose to do or choose not to do. Well, don't I have armor on when I become a Christian? No, you don't. It's issued to you, but you have to put it on. That's why he says, put on. Ephesian believers, you know Jesus Christ. Now put on the full armor. Full armor means nothing left out. A complete set of supernatural resources that he has made available. And these are the armor of God, meaning he is the manufacturer. He is the supplier of this armor. So that, 
meaning if you put on the full armor, here's what will result. You will stand firm, meaning undeterred, uncompromised, unmoved. Satan will throw his darts, but you will stand firm. You will stand firm against schemes, his plans for evil that involve deceit and mind hacks. His efforts will fail. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. This verse begins kind of a recon report. I want, I want to make sure you understand. If you will put on, you have to choose to do it, put on the armor, you will be successful in your resistance against him. You will stand firm. But just to be clear on who we're dealing with, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So in his recon report, he says, our struggle, which indicates ardor, wrestling, we are not wrestling against flesh and blood. Everyone in this room, everyone who is a human on this planet is flesh and blood. That's not the enemy. Our true enemy is not flesh and blood. That means that the world is not the enemy. They don't like us because they don't like Jesus, but they are captives and slaves. Listen to 2 Timothy. The Lord's bondservant, which, by the way, this is what I call the bondservant protocol. This is how God wants us to respond in the world, even when we're dealing with enemies, uh, challenging people. So I'm going to read the verse in just a minute, but I want you to fix a face in, in your mind as I read it, okay? Who is one of the most challenging people right now you are having to deal with? Doesn't matter what you say. All right, now you're ready to hear this passage. This is God telling you, here's how I want you to respond to that challenging person, okay? The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. That's my part. That's your part. Okay, that's how I'm supposed to respond. Now here's God's part. If perhaps God may, and he does three things, grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses, and number three, escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Our mission is to rescue captives who are doing the work of the enemy, but they're doing so because they are slaves. I remember uh, a story about some unexploded ordnance from Second World War, the bomb, and it didn't go off. They opened it up, and there was a note in it. It was, I think, in Czech where they basically it said, this is all we can do for now. These were slaves of a conquered country who had been enlisted in a munitions plant to assemble the war the bombs, and they were making fake bombs, and they put a note in there. That's what we're dealing with in the world. These are slaves, servants, who are compelled to do the enemy's bidding, but they are not the enemy. We're here to rescue them. We have been told to assault the gates of hell, which will not prevail against us. That's why we're here. 
The world is not the enemy. Who is our enemy? Against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Paul wants us to understand that we're not dealing with a ragtag mob. Our true struggle is against a highly organized spiritual opposition which involves four different groups of special forces. Who are they? Rulers, that's group one. Rulers means administrators. These are the highly organized, the ones who are calling in the shots, the ones who are saying, you know, you've been neglecting Jim for a while. He's thinking he's got this covered. Now is the moment. The powers, those are the ones who have the ability to do the extraordinary world forces of this darkness, those are earth-based truth clouders. They're, they're going to bring darkness. And their specialty is to sow doubt, denial, disregard, and resistance to truth. They're actually capable of letting someone hear the truth and then, I don't know how they do this, but whispering, <laughs> that can't be true. And then the spiritual forces of wickedness, wickedness, that's group four. This is a group that targets the flesh. They are interested in promoting the pursuit of physical or material satisfaction, pleasure, fulfillment apart from God. And by the way, this particular group, their theater of operation is not restricted to earth. They operate in the heavenlies as well. Bottom line, who are we dealing with? Our enemy is organized. The theater of operations stretches from earth to heavenly places. There is nowhere you can go to escape his influence. His forces include decision makers, power wielders, global confusion and disinformation specialists, and promoters of wicked pleasure. Self-sufficiency isn't going to cut it. What do I do? Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Therefore, in light of what I've just told you about what we're up against, there is only one action plan that makes any sense. You are not going to effectively combat this on your own. You have to take up the full armor. Grab your gear, all of it. So that, purpose clause, here's why I grab it up, so that I will be able to resist in the evil day. In other words, not succumb to temptation when it is unleashed. Satan does not constantly tempt. Let me show you an insight from the life of Jesus. This is Luke 4, 13. This was the temptation of Jesus, and Satan was doing what he does with Jesus. Yeah, do all that God stuff you want to do, but worship me. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. One of Satan's tools is neglect. Satan uses neglect to set us up for failure, for us to go, you know, I was, I was really struggling with whatever it was, and uh, I feel like I've got that pretty well under control. 
And that's when the enemy is going to whack you. Neglect is one of his tools. <laughs> but the fully armed saint, evil day, is ready for such a day because he's got his armor on. The fully armed saint, by right of wearing his armor, will effectively resist temptation. And having done everything to stand firm. Having done everything to stand firm means that you have actually put on the armor. And if you have the armor on, then you will stand no matter what the enemy throws at you. We face an enemy who is working a stealth plan to tear down what God is building. He and his forces are organized, powerful, capable of clouding our thinking, and can precisely target temptation to our weaknesses. But God is designed and then created and makes available to us a complete armor system. And when this armor is taken up, put on, used, we are capable of effectively resisting this superior foe and his attacks. Now, there are seven specific components to this armor, or six plus one, which if we got into it deeper, I would help to explain that. But the pieces of armor are not metaphors for positional truth. The six pieces of armor are not describing what happened at salvation because he says to believers who are saved, you got to put this on, you got to pick it up. These are practical responsibilities. We have to take up this armor. Spiritual setbacks can actually be traced to armor failures. For example, in the passage where uh, the disciples, the, the nine, uh, not the three who had gone up on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, but the nine were unsuccessful in dealing with a demon and a young boy. What Jesus told them is actually, and I didn't use these words, but what he told them was, you're missing armor piece four and armor piece seven. That's why this didn't work. Get this. Only believers are issued a panoply, which that's the word for full armor. Only believers are issued a panoply. But we have to learn to wear it and learn how to use it effectively. A believer who assumes that his salvation is his protection from the enemy is a prime target. The saved are issued armor, but bottom line, we've got to use it. We know we are engaged in a spiritual battle. We know that, our own, that on our own we will fail, but God has provided a complete kit by which his servants can prevail. Only those who are using this kit will prevail. Well, what's in the kit? I realize I'm, you know, I've done sermon series where I take six to eight weeks to do, do this, but I'm going to just give you the summary, okay? The belt of truth is about telling the truth. The breastplate of righteousness is about doing what is right. The shoes of the gospel of faith is about confessing your sin. The shield of faith is about believing what God says. And interestingly, this piece of armament 
uh, actually extinguishes flaming darts. Uh, uh, helmet of salvation. I'm torn because there's so much more I'd love to tell you, but uh, it'll have to wait for another time. The helmet of salvation is about seeing your future. And then the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, word there is not logos, but rhema, which means a situation-specific word. In other words, if you know what the word of God is that relates to your specific situation, that's the sword of the spirit. That's actually a, an offensive weapon that you are capable of using. And then prayer, which is not identified with a specific armor piece, is about asking for God's help with the previous six. Okay, Jim, how do I use this armor? What a wonderful question. I'm going to give you step one, okay, to start using this armor. Step one is simply this. Will you commit yourself to learning how to use these seven disciplines? If you decide, you know what, I think I can handle Satan on my own. That's really stupid, but some may decide that. But if you're saying, I know I'm in over my head, then you start by saying, God, I want to learn how to use this armor. Paul said to the Corinthians, we are not ignorant of his schemes. We know what he is up to. Which is why he says, last word, Ephesians, pick up the armor. So the decision in front of you at the moment is, will you decide and tell Father this, I want to learn how to use the armor so that I can be successful in dealing with the enemy. Bob Vernon, in the early part of his career, was an L.A. motorcycle cop. And uh, one morning, early in the morning, he saw this red pickup truck that uh, blew through an intersection. So he uh, turned on his emergency lights. He radioed in, I'm in pursuit. And then he followed the guy, pulled him over. Fortunately, he pulled over. The driver thought, the cops already know? He was scared and he rested his hand on a gun that he had used moments before at a 24-hour market. The officer walked up, you know, parked the bike, walked up. Good morning, sir, son. Uh, good morning, sir. May I see your... Never finished the sentence. Driver grabbed the gun, pointed it at his chest, inches away, pulled the trigger, and he was blown back about seven feet. A few seconds later, to the shock of the criminal, the officer stood up, pulled his revolver, fired twice. The first bullet went through the open window and shattered the windshield. The second tore through the door and ripped into the driver's leg. And in that moment, the thief said, don't shoot! And he threw the gun and he threw the bag of money that he had stolen out the window. What saved the policeman's life? <laughs> was dozens of layers of Kevlar, about three-eighths of an inch thick. Kevlar can stop bullets cold. In Ephesians 6, 
The Bible instructs every believer to put on the full armor of God. And only this armor can stop the fiery darts of the enemy. But it only works if you wear it. So your first decision right now is to resolve, I want to learn how to put on the armor so that I can stand firm no matter what he throws at me. The armor is capable of doing it. You have to wear it. In order to wear it, you have to decide, I want to learn how to wear it. Want to ask Father for his help? Let's do that. Let's pray. Father, I am pleading on behalf of this people and myself that you would show us how to effectively wear the armor. We are not ignorant of the fact that we have an enemy, an adversary, who wants to work us spiritual harm. And even now, even in this moment, he wants to work our harm. But you have provided what is adequate for us to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, to resist the devil, and he will flee from us. So I am pleading that you would teach us as a people how to wear well that armor. What does each component consist of? And how can we put it on and be strong in the strength that is in Christ? Thank you, Father, that this is a prayer that you would delight to answer because it accords with what you told us we need. Thank you that you will help us Every earnest soul that is saying, God, would you please show me, you will say yes, and your spirit will teach us how to wear the armor well. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.